Amen. You can have a seat. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Man, good looking crowd. Got your best on. I love it. I'm wearing a jacket, so it's good. It's a party. Man, so glad that you're here. You want to grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Would it take us back today to that resurrection Sunday? But before I did that, I, I wanted to take you back to another important time, the, the early 90s, if that's okay. <laughs> I was in the sixth grade, and the thing to do in the early 90s, if you were in Springfield, Missouri, which is where I grew up, is to go to the skating rink. Anybody been to the skating rink? Like more than one time, all you one-timers, like not interested in you. Yeah, I mean, going to the skating rink was cool. At least it was back in the early 1990s. And the place was called Skate Corral. That was it. There were other places. Skate Land, no. The posers went to Skate Land. The cool people went to Skate Corral. It was on old Route 66 across the road from the abandoned uh, drive-in movie theater. So you know what kind of place I grew up in. And on Friday nights, my mom would drop me off at the skate, skating rink at the skate corral and would cruise around for a couple of hours and then she'd pick me back up and love to skate. You know, it was fun. When you walked into the skate corral in Springfield, Missouri, it smelled like hot Fritos, which I thought for the longest time was just the snack bar. But now looking back on it as an adult, I think it was just the smell of a thousand feet. Uh, so imagine that the next time you open up a bag of Fritos. And we would skate around, and I loved it. There was one part of the whole Friday night experience that I was not a big fan of. It was the couple skate. Because they would get on the intercom because there was a DJ, which is like, I'm thinking the pinnacle of being a DJ is to be the DJ at the skate corral in the early 90s at Springfield, Missouri. And they would say, you know, they'd lower their voice because that's what DJs do. It's time for the couple skate. And that meant people like me had to get off the floor and onto the carpet, the carpet of shame, you know. That's where you go if you can't skate or if you don't have a couple. You could stay out on the floor if you could skate backwards, though. It was either you were in a committed relationship for at least an hour or you could skate backward. Either way, got you onto the hardwood. I was neither, so I didn't have the skills to pull off the backward skating, nor did I have the skills to couple up because I've told you before that middle school was kind of an awkward time for me. I was growing into manhood like one part at a time. And so I was very short with a very impressive mustache. Just not the time for backward skating or coupling. Just not a good time for me. So I have to go sit over on the bench while the couple skated and they looked so cool and they had their inline skates because everybody at the skating rink knows it's inline skates and not roller blades. And, uh, and, and then after the song was over, which was uh, some 80s hairband number, they uh, said, now it's an all skate. And that meant people like me who did not have backward skating skills or coupling skills could get back onto the floor. Sometimes when I think about the resurrection of Jesus, I think of it as something that just happened to Jesus. And it's kind of hard to apply, isn't it? I doubt that even the most committed of us were in our cars the last few weeks and driving around and you were thinking about what the resurrection actually meant to you. 
If we're going to do things like that, it's usually the cross that we resonate with. It's the cross of Jesus that we think about. But the resurrection of Jesus is kind of hard to apply to ourselves or think about or really see ourselves in it. But what we're going to see from the scripture today is the resurrection of Jesus is for everyone. It's not just for Jesus. And it's not just for a select few. But it is for everyone. It's for the faithful, it's for the fearful, and it's for the faithless. And here's the confession from the pastor today. I will take a turn being all of those things between this Easter and the next Easter. Hopefully there will be a lot of days where I'm faithful, but I promise you there will be some days that I'm fearful. And there might even be some days that I'm faithless. But the resurrection is for everybody. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the, uh, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Now, this is an angel. And the angel's getting ready to say some things to them. But when an angel speaks, he's only speaking on behalf of God. Angels in heavenly places right now are not thinking of things to say to people. They're only the mouthpieces of God. And so whatever this angel says is coming from God. Verse 6, And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Verse 14, And afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Back to verse 1, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now the reason it mentions the Sabbath it mentions them coming early when the sun first came up on Sunday morning is because Jesus died on a Friday afternoon. And Friday at sunset began the Sabbath for God's people. Now the Sabbath doesn't mean that much to you and I. It's just a day of rest and that's about all that we think about it. But the Sabbath for, for you, if you were a first century Jewish person, was holy. And by holy, it meant we're not going to do any work. And that included laying Jesus to permanent rest. So when they were removing him from the cross, they had to hurry so that they could be finished by the time the sun set because Sabbath was starting. And so they just wrapped him quickly in linen cloths instead of putting the normal anointing oils and spices on him in the way that they would do when they were permanently 
laying someone to rest. And so all day Saturday, it's Sabbath until sundown, but there's no electricity, so they can't go at night. So the very first opportunity they have to come and prepare Jesus's body for permanent rest is on Sunday morning when the sun first came out. And you notice that these are all women. Usually when we think of the main characters in the stories of the Bible, we're usually thinking about men, thinking about the 12 disciples, thinking about the 11 apostles, thinking about Paul and Silas and Timothy, Titus. But here it's the women. And it shouldn't surprise us that it's these women who are coming to lay Jesus to rest. I mean, even the page before in chapter 15, verse 40, Jesus has been crucified. And it says, There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. So these are the same women who are there laying Jesus to rest on Sunday morning. And look at what it says in verse 41. And when he was in Galilee, so that means early in Jesus' ministry, they used to follow him and, were, and would minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Men, we should be humbled today. Because if you had been there when Jesus died, there's no guarantee that you would have actually been there to lay Jesus to rest. The greater possibility is that your wife or the lady sitting next to you would have been the one who had the courage and tenacity to actually go and to see Jesus' body one more time and to prepare it for eternal rest. These women are the picture of faithfulness. And the resurrection is for them because it was first told to them. Now, it, it will help us to understand their faithfulness. Most of these women were from Galilee. That's where Jesus was from. And Jesus was not, as you probably know, the first person to come through Israel to, to be called the Messiah. In fact, there had been a handful of would-be Messiahs who had rolled through at one time or another before Jesus' birth. But these people, especially these women, they saw something special about Jesus and for some reason, they believed in him. And they didn't just believe in him. They believed in him enough to kind of put their own life on hold. The disciples, those 12, they believed in Jesus enough that he really was the Messiah to put their own life on hold. So they would leave vocations. They would leave family for a long time to travel with him. These ladies are funding him. They're ministering to him. They're taking care of his needs. And Jesus is teaching and the crowds are just unbelievable. And here, the week before the story that we're reading, which we celebrated last week, they're all coming into Jerusalem. And it's not just these faithful people that are caught up in it. It's like all of Jerusalem is caught in. And Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, riding a donkey. And the people that were there, they're, they're believing in Jesus so much and they're uh, ascribing such praise to Jesus. They're shouting, Hosanna. And they're saying that even the donkey that you're riding on, we don't want its feet to touch the ground. So let me take off the cloak that I'm wearing and lay it on the ground like a, a red carpet. And if you didn't have a cloak, you went and got a palm branch so you could wave it. And so you have to be thinking that these faithful women who had been with him forever, all these years, they just felt like this was such a huge moment that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He was going to take the throne. Rome was going to be pushed out. It's going to be this amazing thing. But halfway through the week, something changed. And the way they were responding to Jesus' teaching in the temple was different. And it became this undercurrent of hostility. And by Friday, he was dead. And maybe he was just like all these other would-be so-called messiahs who attracted a crowd and then died. So imagine what the resurrection, this Sunday morning was for them. 
Imagine what this resurrection was for their faithfulness. It was validation. We don't get the conversation that they had from the garden tomb to the place where they went and told the disciples. We don't know what that was like, but I guarantee you one of those ladies turned to one of the other and said, I knew it. I knew we were right. I knew that we were right to put our faith in him. This resurrection, it validated their faithfulness. Now you may say, well, how does it validate our faithfulness? We believed in Jesus on the, this side of his resurrection. Well, thankfully, there are the words of Philippians chapter three when the apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's true that you are not an eyewitness, a firsthand account of Jesus's first resurrection, but you can be a firsthand account of the power of his resurrection. You may notice, and you probably don't because you don't, you don't you know, notice everything that I do, which is healthy, actually. Uh, but uh, I'm using a significantly larger Bible today than, than I have in the past. For one reason, these, the words in the little Bibles are much harder to see, and I'm getting older. Uh, but, um, you know, I grew up in church, and so I've had no shortage of Bibles in my lifetime. I mean, just kind of embarrassed of how many Bibles I've owned. But if there was a fire happening, uh, I would only rush for two of them. And uh, one of them is actually at my parents' house in Missouri, but I have the other one. When I was 20 years old, Amanda and I had been dating for about eight or nine months, and she bought me a new Bible. In fact, it was this very Bible, only this is like an updated version of it, so it looked a little bit different than this. But if I want to turn to page such and such, it's the exact same page. And uh, that Bible was so important to me because it was when I grew from a spiritual boyhood to manhood. Now, obviously, I already told you that I already hit manhood back in sixth grade, but that was just physically not spiritually because of the mustache, remember? I just want everybody to picture it. Um, but I had this Bible that she bought me and she put my name on it. It was so special and it was such a unique season. I was so hungry for the ways of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the word of God. And I would wake up in the morning and I would do Bible study with that Bible that she had gotten me. And then I'd go off to class and instead of having lunch in the cafeteria, uh, I would get my lunch to go and I'd take it back to my dorm room because my roommate wasn't around. And I'd do some more Bible study at lunchtime. And then if my roommate wasn't around that evening before I went to bed, I'd do some more Bible study. And I love that Bible because I was transitioning from a simple faith to a simple but hopefully mature or maturing faith. And it's so special to me. And every once in a while, I feel the wind of the Spirit kind of blowing me back to that kind of heart, where I just want to be a student of God's Word again, where I'm just hungry, where I just want to, I want to understand Him. You know, because I'm just a normal person. I'm a pastor, but I'm going to be honest, there are sometimes that I open the Bible and I read it and I forget what I just read. Or read it for five minutes and then close it and then move on to other things. I'm not immune from those things either. But every once in a while, a fresh wind will blow in my soul and in my home. And I will get my Bible out. I'm not just bringing my mind. I'm bringing my faith. And I can sense the power of the resurrection of Jesus. That feeling where you know that it's not just your mind. It's not just an intellectual transition of ideas. My soul is being built up and my faith is being built up. Maybe you've experienced that when you've prayed. You push aside that first five minutes where there's just nothing but religious talk that comes out and after five minutes you get to the real you with the real him and you can sense the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you feel that or sense that when you serve. We live in a culture and we're given 
to lifting ourselves up and trying to be the most important person in the room. But every once in a while, we'll get in a moment where we can be the least important person in the room and we can lift up other people and we can serve other people and we can look out for the needs, not of ourselves, but of somebody else. And maybe in that moment of humility, you've sensed the power of Jesus's resurrection. You may not be a firsthand account of what we're reading today, but you can be a firsthand account of the power. And that power validates your faithfulness. But the resurrection is not just for the faithful. Because if it was, I'd be in trouble. And I think that you would too. It's also for the fearful. Verse 3. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And, they said, and he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Now verse 7, watch this. But go and tell his disciples. Now for that to make any sense, for that to have any punch, we need to rewind just a little bit. So turn just a few pages to the left to Mark chapter 14. Because what we're going to see is we're going to see the disciples being afraid. Now, we all know what panic feels like, I would guess. Sometimes serious panic and sometimes ridiculous panic, but you don't know it's ridiculous panic until later on. Like, for example, last weekend, Amanda and I and the kids were invited to this amazing birthday party at some friend's house. And we were there and so many amazing people there, some that we knew really well, some that we knew just a little bit and, and some that we didn't know at all. And it's beautiful patio in their backyard and all decorated with lights for the birthday party. And we're there for a couple of hours just talking, just really enjoying it. And Amanda looks deep into my eyes and I'm thinking, oh man, after all these years, she still loves me. And she goes, what happened to your eyebrow? <laughs> I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, there's something messed up with your eyebrow. Like it's part of it's missing. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've been here for two hours talking with people and like not addressing that something is wrong with my eyebrow. They're going to think I'm so weird. And here I am trying to make a good impression. I'm just panicked. And I'm thinking like, like the eyebrows are like the thickest hair that I have on my head. You know, like (laughs) I cannot afford for them to bail out on me at this point, you know? So I run to the bathroom and I'm looking and like, sure enough, like there's a big chunk of my eyebrow like missing. Like it's starting to grow back a little bit, but don't look upon me right now, okay? <laughs> Avert your eyes. I'm kind of self-conscious about it. And like, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea. Amanda's theory is that they brought the birthday cake lit with candles by me and like somehow the flame, you know, but I'm like, I think I would have remembered if my face was over her cake, you know? It seems like something I would remember and people would be grossed out by, you know? But you know that like panic, like that instant fear that happens. And again, sometimes it's so ridiculous. And other times that panic and fear is a little bit more real, real and it's a little bit more serious. And that's what's happened to the disciples in Mark chapter 14. I mean, if you think that you've been afraid in your life, I'm not sure it can rival what they experienced in this moment. Jesus has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and now Judas has come. Betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus is getting ready to be arrested. And this is what Jesus says in verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Verse 50. 
And they all left him and fled. Now, this is not just Jesus' students. Because just a few hours before he was arrested, you know what he said to his disciples? I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. These were his friends that fled because of their fear. Fear is all over the last week of Jesus' life. These disciples are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to have to endure the pain and suffering that Jesus is getting ready to endure. The religious leaders, they're the ones who are really driving Jesus' arrest and execution. They're afraid that Jesus really is the Messiah, but he's going to be an earthly Messiah, and they're going to lose all of their control. Pilate, the Roman governor, who's the one who's going to put the final... uh, gavel down to sentence Jesus to death. He doesn't want Jesus to die, but he's afraid that these religious leaders are going to stir up the crowd. They're going to stir up all of Israel. Word's going to get back to the Roman empire and he's going to lose his position. So let's just rewind this. Fear of pain and suffering, fear of loss of control, and fear of people. I know nobody in this room struggles with those things, fights against those things. And here's what's crazy. The disciples were right to be afraid. If they had stuck around, there was a very good chance that they themselves may have been arrested. They themselves may have suffered. They themselves may have been sentenced. But just because we're justified for fear is not an excuse to not be brave. Listen, you have every reason in this world to be afraid. Sickness, People, jobs, economies, future. You can find any justification you want to be afraid. But just because we have a reason to be afraid does not mean we have an excuse to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is not afraid. He's the one who's going to be arrested. He's the one who's going to be tortured. He's the one who's going to die. But he stands there bravely and boldly filled with courage. And who do we follow? Do we follow the disciples or do we follow Jesus? We are followers of Jesus. And here's how that fear bears fruit. If you turn back to Mark 16, they're still afraid. They're starting to hear that Jesus has been resurrected, but they are all locked away, one of the other gospels tells us. Because they're still afraid that even though Jesus has died, that maybe the Roman Empire or the temple police are still looking for them. So they're all tucked away, hidden out in fear. But Mary Magdalene and the other women, they see Jesus. And it says in verse 10, she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. Verse 11, when they had heard uh, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And verse 12, and after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. See, their fear led to skepticism. See, when we think of doubt, we think of doubt being the product of rational and reasoned thinking. That's why some people are afraid to use our minds in our faith, but you don't have to be afraid to use your mind in in, in your faith. In fact, it's a good thing. Because for most of us, doubt does not come from reasoned and rational thinking. It comes from fear. Just like Eve. Eve is afraid that God in the Garden of Eden is holding out on her. That he's withholding some kind of secret knowledge or secret way of living. 
There's something better out there for her. So she doubts the validity of God's word when he says, if you eat from the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. Just like you and I, we are afraid that if we forgive, there will be a lack of justice in our relationships. So we doubt Jesus's words, love your enemies. We fear pain and suffering. Everyone does. And that fear gives birth to doubting God's word in Philippians chapter four, be anxious about nothing. So much of our view of God and the things that he says in his way is driven by our fear of being disappointed. Our fear of being let down, our fear of losing control. And just like Jesus just appeared right into the middle of their fear in this upper room. Jesus can appear with the power of his resurrection right into the middle of our fear. Because the resurrection is not just for the faithful, it's for the fearful. And finally, it's also for the faithless. Verse seven, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now Peter is singled out here. There's a reason that Peter is singled out because he singly handedly committed, if not the gravest sin this weekend, then one of the gravest sins. I want, I want to show you to you turn just again back to Mark chapter 14. You're going to be familiar with it. Jesus has told Peter sometime in the, before the sun comes up, he's going to deny knowing Jesus three times. Peter didn't believe it, but that sure enough is what happens. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, so Peter has fled with the rest of the disciples, and now he's kind of come back around to see what happens next. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Now we don't know where Peter went. We know at some time though, he rejoined the rest of those disciples. And I wonder if you can imagine with me what that reunion was like. They have all fled. Peter and one other have gone back to see what happens next to Jesus. Secretly. Then Peter denies Jesus, comes back into the room. Do you think he tells them? You think he just walks into that locked room and says, guys, you're never, you're never going to believe what I did. I'm so broken. Or do you, do you think he would do what a typical man would do and just be quiet? Wait for somebody else to say it. And how ashamed do you think he felt? You know that book, Scarlet Letter? I think Peter was feeling a scarlet letter on him that day when he reunited with the rest of those men. But I bet his said D 
for denying. And I'm sure he imagined everybody could see it on him. Listen, Peter's not alone wearing scarlet letters. What letter does your shame start with? For some of us, it's L for lust. For some of us, it's G for greed. Some of us, it's J for jealousy. Some of us, it's H for hate. What letter does your shame start with? Because while maybe nobody has ever stuck one of these on you, You can feel the weight of it hanging from your soul. And Peter could too. And listen, that's that's not even the end of the bad news for Peter. I mean, did you catch what he said in verse 71? And he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Now, Bible scholars tell us that when it says curse and swear, he's not saying cuss words. What he is saying is, I swear to God, I do not know this man. Now, that may just roll easy off your tongue on a Monday through Saturday. But if you are a first century Jewish man, you do not say, I swear to God. But Peter does. And then he goes further. And he says, and if I'm lying, let a curse be on my head if I do know this man. So Peter comes back into this room. With his D all over his soul, deny, deny, deny. And the curse that he has called down on himself. See, there is a reason that you can't come today and hear about our sin and our shame and be like, you know what, that's true, but that happened a long time ago, so I'm just gonna shake it off. I'm just gonna start being a better person. I'm gonna forget that because that was in the past and hopefully over time it's minimalized in my memory and it's not as a big deal. No, because there is a curse that comes along with sin and you didn't call it down on your head, but you inherited it from your mom and dad who inherited it from their mom and dad who all the way down inherited it from Adam and Eve. See, sin has its hooks in you. Because there's a curse that comes with sin. And you can't shake yourself free. But there's good news. In fact, there's not just good news. There's great news. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as, uh, as you are, un, are of the works of law are under a curse. For it is written, listen to this. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So have you ever disobeyed one time anything that you're reading here? then you're cursed. You're cursed. Verse 13 though. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There is no curse. Because Jesus has been cursed. And he absorbed all of that on the cross. And then you get a passage like Romans chapter 6. 
It says in verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Look at this. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. See, the great news is, great news for Peter, and this is why it can be the disciples and Peter, is because Jesus made room in the cross for Peter and he made room in the cross for you and I so when Christ died you died and he who has died what does it say is freed from sin so that shame that you feel it does not have to stick to you because you're free because Jesus made room in his death for you but not just his death we, we died with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with him. He made room in his resurrection for you. And that's why it can say the disciples and Peter. Or and Curtis. Or and your name. Because the resurrection isn't just for the faithful. It's for the fearful. And it's for the faithless. And that means you. So today is a good day. Because Jesus is alive. And we are too. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you saw us, you saw us in the cross and you saw us in the resurrection. Before the foundation of the earth was laid, you had chosen us to be a part of those days. And thank you for saving us when we didn't even know that we needed to be saved. And I pray that the good news of the resurrection would feel like good news to us too. In the power of Jesus' name we pray, amen.